It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Quiet and hardworking Australians, plus you noisy, lazy ones. Today, on Democracy Sausage, we're on the final stretch asking whether parties are finishing in style or whether pre-polling suggests voters have already done a victory lap. Plus, we take a look at a boost to first homeowners, but will voters be left with buyer's remorse? Hello and welcome to Democracy Sausage. We're well into the election campaign now. In fact, by the time we go to our next time and our next broadcast, we'll actually uh, have uh, had the result in this uh, rather strange and uh, unique election campaign. I'm joined, as always, by Dr. Maria Taflaga from the Politics and International Relations School here at ANU. Uh, Maria, what do you think of this election campaign? It's uh, certainly been interesting. Yeah, I think this has been um, one of the most interesting campaigns we've had in about 25 years. Um, and the main reason I think for that is that we actually have some choices to make, some real stark um, uh, choices about the future direction of the country. So that's exciting. It is. It is really interesting. Um, there's a. There's. I mean, a lot been said about sort of voter disengagement a lot of the time, which seems to, in a sense, cut across that. You know, it's an important election campaign, and yet the campaigns themselves have have been perhaps not as inspiring as uh, we like. Although that's always the case. There's always. You know, people are always saying it's kind of disappointing. Uh, but does it feel like to you like there's been even though as you say there's this big choice between the two different the two sides you know the the Labor Party is offering a kind of a big government vision and talking about redistribution the the existing government is talking about just more of the same um, but is there an absence of vision in the in the like the rhetoric around this election? Are we secretly talking about yesterday's launch? Is that what we're is that what we're well, getting at? <laughs> Well, we'll come to yesterday's launch in a moment. I'll, I might now just bring in some of our other uh, guests as well. We have here uh, today Stephanie Peatling, an old colleague of mine from not Fairfax. That old. Not No, no. <laughs> she's not old. It's just an old relationship uh, with uh, at Fairfax Media or now known as Nine Newspapers. Uh, welcome, Steph. Thanks, Mark, for having me. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure. Bob McMullen joins us again. He's a former Labor minister, former MP from Canberra, and, of course, a former national campaign director for the ALP. So he brings a very unique uh, skill set to this panel. Thanks, Mark. Good to talk to you. And Patrick Dumont, Professor Patrick Dumont, from the similarly from the School of Politics and International Relations, uh, an expert in all kinds of things, not least being Smart Vote, the, uh, uh, the alternative, I suppose, to Vote Compass. Glad to have you here, Patrick. Hi, Mark. Thanks for the invitation. It's a pleasure. Now, can I go to you first, Bob, on the campaign as you see it so far? Is, is there any surprises here? I mean, we've got a poll out today showing another poll. There's been a poll coming out pretty well every week, but we've got a poll out today showing that the, the you know it's fairly close on two-party preferred, 49-51, Labor still in front. What do you make of these polls? Well, I mean, of course, each poll you have to take uh, with a with, with the recognition of the margin of error, but the consistency of them is significant. Rhetorically, everyone is talking as if 
there's a very big victory for the Labor Party coming up, but none of the polls are saying that. They're all saying it's going to be close and tight, and particularly when you look at the preponderance of seat-by-seat polls, which we all know are much less reliable, but nevertheless, when you get most of them saying the Liberal Party is just going to hang on, uh, it does lead to for me to be apprehensive. But of course, I've been, I was apprehensive in 1983 and I was apprehensive <laughs> in 2007. So don't take any notice of me. <laughs> yeah, look, it's really interesting though, that, as you say, that, that we started out in this process, if you think back to even before the budget, the Labor's mm. been ahead in the polls for a long time and been quite significantly ahead. Mm. Uh, there was a feeling that there would be a tightening. There's a general kind of expectation amongst uh, people who watch politics closely that there'll be a tightening in the polls as the election nears. In Australia, elections do tend to be close in in nature, right? So I guess there was an expectation of this closing. Has the closing already occurred? I mean, we as, as I say, we're at 49.51 now with the coalition trailing. The coalition is on a primary vote according to the latest news poll of 37, uh, 39 now, sorry. It is still three points off the 42 that it registered at the last election where, of course, it just fell over the line and there's been an, a redistribution since as well. So both sides need to actually increase their vote to pick up seats. But um, has ha, I, I guess what I'm asking you, Bob, is do you think that the that tightening has occurred now and that this is where it's settled at 49.51? If you look at the momentum of the campaign, you'd have thought it tightened for the first two or three weeks and probably has spread again in the last week or two of the campaign but that's not yet reflected in the polls but that's what you that's what it looked like from the momentum of things it looked to me like the first few weeks morrison got slightly better of the campaign the last two weeks i think shorten's got slightly better of the campaign but there's no there's nothing in the polling that indicates that that momentum has actually been reflected in voter support so it may just be a superficial lot of changes when in fact Nothing much is changing. Michael Kroger said on Sky yesterday, if you start an election campaign behind, you usually finish behind. And, <laughs> and that's essentially correct. I mean, not 100% correct, but essentially correct. Yeah, that's right. It's like pole position in racing. I mean, you're better off starting from the front and uh, hopefully you can maintain that lead. Stephanie Peakling, you've covered a lot of federal elections. And you're, you're sitting in a really uh, um, sort of key position now in the, in the Bureau of uh, Nine Newspapers. Does this election campaign feel different to you from the point of view of uh, you know covering it for media than, than previous ones? It does. Uh, the first thing I'd say is that I think everyone was incredibly relieved that it's not an eight-week campaign like it wasn't yeah. 2016. Um, that was very difficult to cover and I think also very difficult for voters to follow. That was a long period of time for them to, uh, to be engaged. But I think... Um, you know, the same problem is confronting media as is confronting political parties, and that is voter fatigue mm. and voter tiredness. I mean, last year was a huge year in Australian politics. We got rid of the Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull. We replaced him with a new one, Scott Morrison. Um, that only happened kind of quite late in the piece last year. People get really tired by these sorts of things. They yeah. make them quite anxious and angry, really. And there's been um, a few state elections as well. That that's right. There's been them. a Victorian state election. There's been a New South Wales state mm. election. We know that the international backdrop of politics is quite uh, tumultuous yeah. at this point in time. The pace of news and politics in Australia over the past 
<clears throat> 10 years or so is just exponentially faster than it used to be. Um, I was talking with Shane Wright, our economics correspondent yesterday, who was covering the housing deposit announcement that mm. the coalition made yesterday. And he was saying, you know, once upon a time, that was the story for the day, but that's not the story for the day anymore because you have to then turn around with the internet and instantly write Bill Shorten's reaction to it. And then you have to go to economists and ask them, you know, what their thoughts are about a policy. That once upon a time would have been the news cycle for a week. That's now the news cycle for less than one day. It's no surprise that people find it exhausting to keep up with. And I wonder yeah. if that's why we're seeing the extraordinarily high number of people pre-polling. I think it's now at 2.2 million yes. people. Yeah. That is more than double what it was in 2016. And that's just a fascinating phenomenon that I think no one really has any idea what that will mean on election day. Well, precisely. And it may actually slow down the result, couldn't it? I mean, we yeah. won't know that those votes aren't count until... They're, no, they're counted on the night. We went to night. the Electoral Commission last week and asked them about that. Uh, and they wouldn't say how many people they put on, but they did uh, commit to counting those votes on election night uh, before the postal votes are counted. So they might be in for a uh, very long night, I think. Yeah, well, that's a relief <laughs> because the last thing we want is to have this this phenomenon of a whole lot of people voting before polling day to actually slow down the process. You know, if we got to a point where we just didn't know the result because there were too many outstanding right, votes yeah. to count. So, yeah, that's really interesting. Maria, any thoughts on that? Okay. I, I've been asked this question a few times. And I mean, I, I know we know from the survey research, and maybe Patrick might know a little bit more about this than me. Uh, but what we do know is that they tend to be uh, voters that have already decided. They tend yeah. to be voters that have rusted on. So they're less likely to eventually be concerned if something happened late in the campaign because they're likely to be partisan. I'm inclined to say that this just means people know they can vote early. I think that's the definitive thing we yeah. can say about early yeah. voting. I don't think we can say anything else. But what do you think, Patrick? I mean, you've got, you know, as the as the as the person who's brought us smart vote, what do you think about um, early voting in in this country or, um, versus uh, your experience from Europe? Oh well, I would say about the same thing as you just did, uh, which is that it's uh, well, we need more research about who actually uh, pre-polls uh, to to get a definite answer about whether or not it's it, it is an advantage for one of the two main parties. Uh, what it changes, of course, is the dynamics of the of the campaign because a larger proportion of voters indeed are not affected by the campaign at all. Uh, we also know from comparative uh, voting behavior that actually campaigns do not matter that much in general. Mm. But here in Australia, of course, I'm an outsider here. I cannot compare with uh, previous campaigns having just arrived uh, less than two years ago. What's weird uh, about us, Patrick? Sorry? What's weird about us? What do you uh, find There are plenty strange? of things that are... That are <laughs> <laughs> uh, the list is rather long. Um, but, but just on, on that point, the fact that you keep on having uh, promises that are targeted at specific, specific electorates or states or whatever uh, that come really in the final days of the campaign tends to be uh, rather odd uh, from a continental Europe uh, perspective where basically you've got electoral manifestos mm. well in advance, like two months in advance, uh, that basically cover... Well, that's going to have to change, isn't it? I mean, if, if, as you say, if we're seeing an increasing trend towards people voting before polling day, then it's going to have to change. I wonder whether we're not actually moving towards a situation where, um, where we will come away from an, an election day and have an election period. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't see why that would be such a, a bad thing, actually. Uh, 
if we're going to have compulsory voting, then the one thing I would have thought the corollary of that, the thing that should go with it is that mm -hmm. it ought to be as convenient as possible. If your obligation is that you do have to vote, mm -hmm. then you want to make that as easy as possible and, and have people voting when they feel they've got enough information to do it and they want to go and, uh, and register their preference. Yeah, I totally agree. Sorry, Patrick. Uh, but I've been annoyed by it. People from both the major parties are saying we've got to shorten this period because it doesn't suit us. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's not about them. I mean, I know I used to run the Labor Party and I probably would have said the same thing, but it's not right. I am so I glad agree. to hear you it say that because that's exactly what I thought. It is about the voters. And you have to adjust your campaign to when people want to vote, not adjust when people want to vote to what suits your campaign. You yeah, cannot do that. It's right. just wrong. That's right. And Steph, you were making the point before about the, um, you know, the uh, – the mortgage insurance announcement that uh, that the coalition made yesterday. So that's on the Sunday, the final Sunday before the campaign. As you say, what is it? Uh, Two million people have voted. Two point two million. Two point two million people have voted already. So those, so that announcement can't affect them. Well, I did joke with a colleague on the way in the morning. You know, I wonder if people who've already voted, do they get buyer's remorse? You know, do they suddenly <laughs> kind of go, oh wow, I would have really liked that five percent deposit. <laughs> I just, yeah. I'm going to switch my vote, but I can't do it now. Well, luckily, luckily, and this goes to another point, they don't have to switch their vote had they voted the other way, because it turns out that within within moments, the Labor Party had mirrored that. What was what was behind that? Do you think? Why? I mean. The, the, the obvious answer is it's to neutralise the policy, but how does it neutralise it? Well, it means that the coalition doesn't have an attack line. It doesn't get to have, you know, 12, 24, 36 hours of saying, you know, we're standing for young home buyers. We've listened to their concerns about housing affordability and this is our policy. Where's Labor's policy on this? You know, we demand that Bill Shorten stands up and, you know, puts his voice on this. So it robs them of that um, advantage to come out and attack the other side on that ground. Yeah, that's interesting. So it's not just about, you know, voters kind of weighing up the two sides and saying, oh, well, this side's got a this new uh, assistance for first home buyers, therefore I'm going to go for it. It's it's so there's there'll be some of that, but it's also what Labor's tactic about is about there really is about simply removing this as an as an item of difference between the two sides so that it doesn't really have much, there's no particular purpose in discussing it a mm. lot during the last week because both sides are going to do it. Well, and also particularly when you look at uh, the Labor Party's pitch over the past five weeks or, you know, whatever period we want to put on the, the campaign period, they're talking a lot about um, interge intergenerational equity. Uh, Bill Shorten said in an interview with our newspapers last week that young people have been robbed by the taxation system, that the way we dealt with uh, people who are older and who have had the benefit of the post-war years and the economic booms and the house marking, et cetera, et cetera, that has disadvantaged young people. A lot of his pitch has been towards that. We've got changes to negative gearing, to franking credits, big on climate change, obviously. So they wouldn't want to be running the risk that the coalition could you know, open up any space between themselves and Labor on that front for those people. I might just take a break there. Uh, you're listening to Democracy Sausage coming to you from the ANU, a, a, a co-production of ANU and Policy Forum. If you want to talk to us on Twitter, our Twitter handle is Apps Policy Forum. Uh, the Facebook group is Policy Forum Pod. And you can email us at podcast at policyforum.net. And we'd be very uh, happy if you did do that because we'd be uh, interested in addressing some of your questions in our next podcast. So uh, get those questions and comments coming in. That would be of great advantage to us and we can uh, uh, respond directly to some of those comments. So stay with us and we'll be back shortly. Hi, Sharon Bessel here. 
If you're listening to Democracy Sausage, then you are obviously a podcast listener of discerning taste with an appetite for analysis. So I'm here to tell you about another podcast that might satisfy your hunger. Each week on Policy Forum Pod, we dig a little deeper into the issues that matter around the world. We bring together experts from a range of backgrounds to shed light on problems and to propose policy solutions. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Or find us on policyforum.net slash podcasts. Okay, welcome back. You're with ANU's Democracy Sausage. I'm Mark Kenny. With me in the podcast studio is Maria Taflaga, Stephanie Peatling, Bob McMullen, and Patrick Dumont. Now, this announcement that the Liberal Party made yesterday, Scott Morrison made yesterday at his low-energy, low-hoopla uh, campaign launch, only six days out from the election, a uh, what's been called a first home deposit scheme, a, a, effectively a guarantee where the Commonwealth will pick up some of the cost of uh, a deposit for a home loan for uh, first home buyers. What what do you make of that, Bob McMullen? Is that likely to uh, register well with uh, with voters, or is it um, just too little, too late? I think totally trivial bit of policy. I think they only announced it because otherwise they'd have had an election launch without any policy. So they had to have something. So they came up with the smallest possible thing. You got to remember what you didn't announce. There's only ten thousand of these every year. Mm. So that in the over in the Australian property market, totally trivial proposal. And it's simply, uh, it's, it, there's some questions about the merits of the policy in terms of encouraging people to take on more debt, but it will be appealing to a few people. But I don't think anything happened yesterday that would move a single vote. It was, as you say, quite late in the piece. It was pretty much the only significant or any sort of new policy announcement that came out of the launch. Um, was it also uh, perhaps sign, a sign that uh, the Liberal Party now recognises that Labor's proposal to put curbs on negative gearing uh, was actually popular with young home buyers. I mean, Labor has argued that by doing this, it will remove investors from, you know, take some of the investors out of the auction market and thus have a downward effect on prices. Now, you know, no one really wants to talk about, you know, people's house prices dropping, but that is in fact what the object of uh, Labor's policy is, uh, and also obviously to rescue a bit of money. Um, but uh, is this an admission by the government that actually it was getting done in this area and it needed some sort of policy response? They're probably overreading it a little bit, but I think at the margin it was probably that, but I really think they looked for the most a slightly appealing minor thing they could announce so they had something to say and people had something to report. It, if you tried to think of 20 policies, this would be about the most trivial one you could think of. It is almost of no impact at all. It would be useful to a few people, but those people will take on more debt and it may turn out not to be good for them anyway. As for the policy launch itself, uh, you've obviously done a few of these things. The the campaign launch, I should yep. say, you've done a few of these things. Yes, uh, what struck you about it? It's obviously very, very much built around Scott Morrison and almost no one else. I thought from a Liberal Party point of view, the most significant thing was there was no stuff up. I mean, that was the key thing they had to do. They had to get through without anything going wrong. And that happened. I thought Morrison did adequately. Uh, it wasn't brilliant, but it was adequate. The idea of patching in the uh, little cameos, I thought that was interesting idea. The fascinating thing was they couldn't fill the hall. I mean, 
why did they book that hall if they couldn't fill it? I mean, there's more places than that you can meet in Melbourne. It's not the only place. Uh, I couldn't believe that they couldn't fill it for their campaign launch. That won't affect the vote either, but it's a stunning thing. They must have a real morale problem in the Liberal Party in Victoria. Oh, and that footage. You can't get enough people to turn out. I mean, it's just amazing. Yeah, that footage of um, of people in the in the back rows um, just just not reacting to anything happening on stage. Yeah, it was it was not a um, it was not a great image for for the campaign. Quite no. different from Labor's launch the week before and 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 Steph Peatling uh, Scott Morrison tried to sort of I guess he was doing some expectation management about it trying to make a virtue out of uh, the the different position the government finds itself in but Labor had had ex prime ministers there some of whom hated each other's guts admittedly but nonetheless they did a good uh, job of smiling. <laughs> yeah, and and I think what you can say about it is even if voters don't buy the idea that those Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear and t-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah. That plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. You know, Julie Gillard and Kevin Rudd are suddenly friends again. They're not going to buy that idea. Or even perhaps that Paul Keating and Bob Hawke are friends again. And they did, you know, they issued a joint statement uh, a day or two later. Um, that what voters will take from it is all those ex-Labor Prime Ministers are still in the Labor Party mm. and they're still actively and they still want to see, show up and support They them. still actively want to see the Labor Party's uh, leader become the Prime Minister. You cannot say the same for the Liberal Party. You would you know, it'd be hard to get uh, Tony Abbott and Malcolm Turnbull into the, you know sitting next to each other in a uh, in a function like that, and you just wouldn't believe that they both wanted that uh, wanted that result. But worse than that was that the Liberal Party couldn't even get people who have been prominent members of its cabinet in the lifetime of this government into that hall. They didn't have Julie Bishop, their most high-profile, arguably the most high-profile Liberal politician in the country, not to mention the fact that by far and away she's the most popular woman. And the most trusted, one of the most that's, trusted that's political correct. figures in the country as and, well. And neither could they get Kelly O'Dwyer, who was there um, until she decided that she was going to retire earlier this year. She was the up-and-coming uh, most uh, senior woman, you know, benchmarked for great things and a, and a very capable politician. So you couldn't even get those sorts of people into the hall to show their support and desire for the re-election of a coalition government. And that says a lot to people. Patrick, uh, Jimon, what do you think of uh, this? I mean, you're looking at uh, Australian politics now. You haven't been, you, as you say, you've been here for a couple of years, but you've uh, uh, looked at politics in uh, uh, campaigns and so forth in Europe. Um, what strikes you about the actual campaign here in Australia? So we talked about how close the election uh, is probably uh, up until the end. Uh, we talked also about the, the clear choices between a centre-left, clearly centre-left party and a clearly centre-right party in a, uh, you know, prominently uh, two-party system. But at the same time, do you know how many parties are running for this election? Do you have an idea of the number, the actual number? It's over 50 parties. Over 50 parties. Over 50. And then you've got 10% of the 1,500 candidates 
who are not running uh, under the banner of any uh, party, uh, but are just independents. So uh, about 150 are independent candidates, and we know that there are some prominent ones who actually have a, a good chance of uh, basically winning a seat, uh, either in the House, most likely, or or even in the Senate. Uh, so, so this is interesting because, uh, of course, there's the the media coverage is also really focusing on the two main parties because they're supposed to be the next government. But at the same time, there are plenty of other parties and independents uh, that are standing and uh, doing some yeah, uh, active participation into, into politics by standing for a party or mm. as an independent uh, that are not really covered. So, so that's that's rather fascinating, and actually, this is the kind of things that Smart Vote helps voters yes. with to to gather information about those minor parties and and independent candidates. Well, let's so, let's just go to Smart Vote yeah, for a moment. Okay. I mean, this is the the uh, the, the uh, voter assist application that um, uh, ANU has uh, partnered with Fairfax Online Newspapers uh, to uh, to uh, run during this election campaign. It's Quite similar to Vote Compass, but it's a bit different. Can you explain what that difference is? Yes, it's different. So, and, and actually, in in Europe, you've got plenty of countries that have different voting advice applications running at the same time during the same the same election. Actually, it's a it, it's a system. Just to talk broadly about voting advice applications that started, let's say, in the late nineties uh, in in Europe, uh, mainly organized by uh, civic education organizations. So it's really the goal is to provide more information about politics, about policies, and about the political supply, basically, in a country so that uh, voters can, you know, gather more efficiently and compare uh, the different programs all at once. And, and to So like Vote Compass, sorry to interrupt, yep. but like Vote Compass, they can see where they stand. They can answer this yep. uh, sort of series of questions, mm -hmm. where they stand issue to issue, and yep. then it will match them with a political candidate, which yes. is a bit different from... Vote compass in that yeah, sense. Yeah, so I, I was coming to that. So the idea is to to see how close you are uh, to either parties or to to candidates, uh, and within those voting advice applications, there are indeed two main kinds. One is just party based, and so uh, usually uh, you would have uh, academic institutions that help code. Uh, the positions uh, of the parties and users then get a result, get some recommendations, let's say, of how close they are to uh, the, the distinctive parties. Vote Compass, for instance, adds up uh, uh, a different step, which is the calibration. So they start talking with those parties. Now, of course, in, in Australia, as I said before, uh, there's not really a tradition of publishing a full electoral manifesto uh, at once and, and long time in advance. So it's, it's a bit more complicated indeed to, to start coding on number of policy issues, uh, those parties. And so th the alternative is to actually ask the parties and the candidates themselves uh, to position themselves uh, on, on the same policy issues. And this is what we did uh, with uh, SmartVote. And again, it allows not to gather only information about the two main parties or let's say the, the three or four main parties, supposedly main parties in, in Australia, uh, but to gather information also about the minor parties and about the independents that are increasingly 
uh, important, and that gets also some kind of a level playing field uh, between it, between established parties yes. and, and new entrants or smaller because, entrants in the place. Because indeed, most of the competition, most of the coverage, and understandably so, uh, is focused on the two main parties because they're going to go into government, and that's the main alternative. But at the same time, we also know that uh, those smaller parties and independents may be influential if they get elected, but also uh, in how uh, the preference votes go uh, within the big parties and the smaller parties. So, so it's important to, to know uh, where they stand, those, those candidates of the different parties. Yes. Do you think, uh, anyone think that uh, these small party candidates are going to be influential in particular seat contests? Are we talking about the high-profile independents or are we well, talking just, about – Well, know? I think – I mean, obviously, the Greens will score a chunk of votes. They're a, they're a, a smaller you know, non-party of government, I suppose. Uh, there are other parties, Palmer United Party, um, One Nation. All around the country, the preferences of these smaller parties are going to – you know, they're, they're obviously going to be influential in some of the results. Could they determine who ends up being the government? What do you think, Bob? Well, the, their preferences could, but uh... – Really, the parties don't, those minor parties don't have much influence over what happens to their preferences. The voters are very low. Uh, if I can give a brief experience, when one time when I ran, the Greens directed preferences against me and to my colleague next door, and we got exactly the same percentage of the preference flow. So I don't take all that very seriously. But so, so presumably, what you're saying there is that voters just either didn't read the how to vote card, or they or they chose to you know chose to go a different way. I, I think it's the I think it's the second. But yes, one can't tell. It's one or the other. But the key thing is the. The uh, the polling is influenced by the assumptions people are making about those preference distributions. And there's only – I don't think any of the assumptions are flawed, but they could turn out to be quite wrong. Yes, I agree. Uh, and that's, what, that's one of the reasons to... makes the polling all a bit hazardous. But uh, I think the independents are much more interesting at this election than the minor parties. I think several independents are going to get elected. Uh, I don't have any idea about what's going to happen in Wentworth, but in the rural seats, I think there's a number of independents going to be elected, and we probably would be surprised about which ones they might be. Uh, you, I, I assume you're thinking about seats like Cowper, possibly Farrah. You know, Cowper, yes. Rob Oakshock's running, Oakshock's running uh, Farrah, I think, uh, against uh, in, Susan in, Lee. Indi, but, Indi, but there could which, be, is that, which is an independent at the moment, yeah. Kathy McGowan's seat. So, but there's a possibility. I think that there could just be some wild cards. I mean, independents uh, surprise you when they come through, uh, and I can't see, any, with the exception of Wentworth, I can't see any urban independents who are going to be elected, uh, with the possible exception of the Senate in the ACT. Yeah, not thinking Warringah. Warringah. Uh, sorry, you're quite right. Yes, uh, I can't. I have no idea what's going to happen, but she's really got a serious chance. But uh, you're quite right about that. I'm. I forgot that. I don't know. Mental block. Um, <laughs> oh, well, the, the, the voters the might have a mental on. block yet. Yeah. It, what, what do you think, Steph? Do you think Warringah uh, – I mean, the, the mail it's, – it's very hard to know, of course. You get assumptions built on assumptions in election campaigns all the time. And so you don't, you know, you don't know until the, the, the votes are count. But um, the mail seems to be suggesting that Zali Stegall is – is looking pretty good in Warringah against Tony Abbott, but that uh, Karen Phelps may struggle to hold on to Wentworth, which she picked up in the by-election only last year. Yeah, I think that seems to be the the safe money at this point in time. It's it's probably a bit hard for me because 
a Sydney newspaper, uh, Warringah and Wentworth are our bread and butter readers. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're fascinated by those electoral contests. They're also they have a lot of glamour to them and excitement. I mean, a former Olympic skier taking on a former prime minister uh, versus a you know big time diplomat taking on a celebrity doctor. I mean, mm-hmm. that's that's stuff for newspapers that can only dream of. You know, plus yeah. they're in probably the two most picturesque seats in Sydney, if not the country. I mean, you know, the ped the reporter covering that are just spending all their time at the beach, basically. It's fantastic for them. Um, <laughs> but it is it is fascinating. Um, I think I, I'm really interested in Wentworth, actually, because it's not like Karen Phelps, who's the independent, uh, came into that seat and did nothing. Um, she uh, She's only been in for, well, really less than half a year. Yeah. And she made a really big splash. You know, she has. She she's been really, really conscientious. She's been very conscientious. Like, she like drove 12 sitting days. Right? Yeah, that's right. 12, exactly. Yeah, she like drove that. a very hard campaign over summer over the uh, medical evacuation bill mm. uh, that produced some outcomes. There's yeah. not a lot of independents that can actually point to that. Um, so it's interesting to see how perhaps the seat's natural liberal inclinations are perhaps starting to reassert themselves towards Dave Sharma, who is possibly, you know, I mean, that's the kind of person that the modern Liberal Party needs to be going for. He's economically more conservative, but he's socially more progressive. He's younger. He has, he's very very articulate. He's very personable. He's not the kind of, um, the the Tony Abbott model, which is, uh, you know, I think probably pretty out of touch with mainstream modern Australian society at the moment. A, you know, a hard capital C conservative, both economically and socially. And Zali Stegall is in the box seat to pick up that seat. And it is one of the seats to be watching on election night. It'll just be fascinating. What what do we think about the idea that uh, let's assume that the polls are correct and the coalition loses? What do you think about the idea that the best case scenario for them within that is that they lose relatively narrowly but lose Tony Abbott and perhaps Peter Dutton. His his seat of Dixon is on 1.7%, so it's easily imaginable that he could be swept away as well. Would this actually lead to a, a rebuilding phase for them? I mean, I, I posit by way of support of that argument the Labor Party. Here we have the Labor Party at the moment uh, looking like it's it's going to win this election and it's doing so on the back of a whole period, you know, six years effectively of unity, of having one opposition leader. And one of the reasons that that's the case, not, you know, was, was Kevin Rudd's rule change about the leadership. But the other is that the big lions of, of the big personalities that really sort of, um, I guess, you know, characterised the divisions in the Labor Party, Kevin Rudd and Julia Gillard, both left shortly after they went out of government. They were both gone. And as a result of that, the Labor Party's had sort of clear air to rebuild with, with um, you know, some people obviously that were around at the time, but they're not the big, the big players. If the Liberal Party is to do that as well, then perhaps it is better off if it doesn't have I mean, they've lost Malcolm Turnbull already. Perhaps they're better off not having uh, Tony Abbott there and perhaps even Peter Dutton, of course, who was such a key figure in the tearing down of Malcolm Turnbull. So I guess if we think, I mean, you know, there's a lot of ifs there, like they have to lose and all of these kinds of things. I mean, I think what's interesting about the Liberal Party is that it's so um, dominated by its parliamentary party room mm. um, that, yeah, who who remains, who survives that election um, really will matter in, in how that future is sort of shaped. Um, and so... Uh, 
you know, if we look at seats like uh, in Victoria where, like, for example, I think um, Sukar's seat, which is I think he holds on 6.7%, but may actually potentially be in trouble in that state, and he's um, aligned onto the conservative side. So if we sort of see, like, seats like that go with a lot of um, losses from one faction over another, well, that might lead uh, short-term to, um, you know, some stability within that party and perhaps, uh, you know, gaining some ground. But that doesn't actually change the fact that, uh, you know, to win government again, they'll have to, like, regain all of these seats. And it it does raise the question of the sort of internal uh, difficulties within the Liberal Party around recruiting members and recruiting MPs. And this kind of goes to this problem of, candidates, candidates getting into trouble. Um, and um, I, I, I don't think that it's necessarily guaranteed that any kind of uh, healing process after this election is going to be straightforward, given that it's not really clear what the government's agenda is now. So without the discipline of government, it's potentially open for Yeah, that's a good anything. point because there's, there, yeah. there, that's the two ways it could go. There's been uh, talk, uh, perhaps some of it's wishful thinking on the part of enemies of the coalition, but talk that the Liberal Party might actually come apart, like it might actually split. The divisions between the right and the left have become obviously very difficult for them in government. Uh, would they just be completely uh, unburdened by any sort of strictures if they're in opposition and just uh, literally, you know, have open warfare and, and, and split? Well, even even if they did, like, I mean, and that has happened historically, um, you know, um, in the past, um, what tends to happen is is that they, you know, even if there is a split and the last time there was a sort of split like this was in the 70s, the liberal movement from South Australia, you might mm. remember that, Mark, um, given you're South Australian um, and grew up there. Uh, but what tends to happen is, is that usually these things end up kind of re-coalescing. So even if they did sort of fracture, um, you know, it it would probably all slush back together at some point in the future. Um, What would be dramatic is if it actually happened under a a different name, right? That would be the most dramatic thing. But, the the, you know, the centre-right of Australian politics is is not going away. Well, what about the alternative then? Anyone have any thoughts about this? Let's assume that the it is close and that uh, perhaps Labor does get more of the, uh, the popular vote than, than the coalition, but the coalition manages to hold on in enough seats. Perhaps it survives as a minority government. That's a pretty, uh, pretty grim outcome for Labor after being ahead for so long. What do you think? Anyone, what do you think, Stephanie? Is that, uh, well, I don't think that would be very good for Bill Shorten. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. But what would it say about what would it say about uh, sort of political orthodoxy or electioneering orthodoxy? I mean, we know that the lesson from 1993, the fight back election, you know, don't make yourself a big target, don't have an adventurous program. Here we have Labor consistently ahead in the polls all the way through, running against a government that really does have a sense about it that it's out of puff. It's not really offering anything other than more of the same. And let's face it, that's only half the story because some of it's, if it, if it was offering more of the same of what it's actually been doing, that would be more division as well. But if the government in those circumstances still manages to hang on, that's a, that's a terrible result for Labor. Yeah, it's very much, uh, it would be seen, I think, like 1993 as a case against getting out and putting radical policies on the on the table and probably that would probably be an accurate assessment be very sad i think uh, i don't just mean cuz the labor party loses i think the idea that people feel inhibited from putting out big bold policies is bad for our democracy and bad for our country 
but I'm fairly sure that would be the reaction. I, I agree with Stephanie, of course. Uh, I don't. I can't see that Bill would lead a third time. It doesn't seem a very. It's not consistent with Australian political history for that to happen. Could happen elsewhere, but not here. I don't think. Um, but uh, it would be uh, a very negative impact on people's. Uh, courage about future election commitments, and I, I think that would be sad. Yeah, I mean, speaking as like a, you know, just a citizen and not a partisan here, the the idea that um, political leaders were afraid to have debates, which has kind of characterised politics um, up until this election for for twenty years, is deeply depressing. I mean, that is their job; they are supposed to come up with alternative ideas through consultation and advocate for them. Um, so. I think that is extremely alarming, particularly when um, it seems like, you know, the sort of previous policy cycle has exhausted itself and people are looking for new ways to to um, adjust our economy and live our lives. And that doesn't have to be a Labor thing or a Liberal thing, but we need to be able to discuss this without reducing everything down to to sweet nothings that mean nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess we're going to know soon enough, uh, so let's uh, reconvene next week and we'll talk about what happened in the election. And if you're interested in hearing some more politics, uh, Maria Tafliger and I will be doing a special one-off broadcast with our colleagues here at ANU on the G'day Sausages uh, podcast, so uh, that's going to be an interesting experience for all. Uh, look, look out for that. Uh, can I thank my guests today, Patrick Dumont, uh, Bob McMullen, Stephanie Peatling, and of course, Maria Taflaga, who's with me each week. And we'll look forward to talking to you next week on Democracy Sausage with Mark Kenny. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.